Rogues of the Black Fury, Episode 24. Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Hearman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travishearman.com slash rogues. Chapter 38. A commotion in the street outside awakened Javin at sunrise. Gongs banging, drums thumping, throngs of voices chanting. He arose and opened the shutter. A procession of gaily clad people, their faces raised with beatific smiles, paraded down the street. In the middle of the parade was what looked like a small wheeled shrine, graven with the images of Inanan, pulled by a long line of children all festooned with brightly colored ribbons and matching silver-threaded robes. Moments later, Tonin stood beside him, peering around for a look. Tonin said, They're celebrating the Moon Mother's rebirth. Their prayers last night gave her strength enough to be reborn again. Damn your eyes, Maggot groaned from his pallet. Shut that fucking window. I can't stand the noise. They ignored him. A knock rapped at the door and Carl cracked it open. Good you're all awake. Boss has a job for you, codsuckers. He's waiting downstairs. Maggot grumbled a string of curses. Where's Maggot? Rusk asked. Javin and Tonin sat across from him and Carl at a table in the inn's common room. Javin answered, I presume he'll be coming along shortly, sir. Rusk settled back on his stool like a boulder settling into place. His hands fisted, and his gaze flicked back and forth between Javin and Tonin. The innkeeper's daughter, a homely girl with broad hips and a noticeable limp, brought them a platter of fresh non-bread, a bowl of soft, lumpy white cheese, and a small pot of honey, along with small cups of tarry black liquid called calf. Somehow, Javin felt that the honey and the cheese were not standard fare in a place as poor as this. Doubtless, Rusk's gold had allowed the innkeeper's daughter a trip to the market. As they settled in to eat, Maggot came lumbering down the stairs. His eyes pointed at the floor as he approached their table. Rusk said, What were you doing, giving your cod a morning stroke? No, sir. I came as fast as I could, sir. Maggot looked like a man expecting a flogging. Sit down, Rusk growled. Maggot slid on to the last stool. Rusk took one of the broad, flat loaves of warm bread and slathered it with cheese and honey. I have a mission for you little codsuckers this morning. The innkeeper tells me there's a marketplace not far from here, the biggest marketplace in this quarter. I have a list of things for you to buy. He slid a scrap of coarse paper across the table, along with a coin purse. 
mostly ingredients for Sasha to replenish her supply of special makeup, and a few other items that might prove useful. The marketplace is said to be a few minutes' walk down the street outside. He pointed in the direction they were to go. I want you back here in an hour. We're going to scout out the temple. We're leaving this in, sir? Javin said. Yes, we don't want to stay in one place too long. Milling shoppers thronged the marketplace. The three men stood on the fringe of the market square, hesitating to enter such a busy crowd of mostly women. Remember, Tonin murmured, don't touch any of the women, even by accident. Their bodies are sacrosanct to everyone but their husbands. What would happen if we did? Javin said. I don't know, but I doubt it would be pleasant, and we don't want the attention. Maggot muttered, perhaps we should try it and see if Lord Wollstone here can save us. Javin turned to face him, and his voice was low and hard. What did you say? I said, perhaps your most august lordship can save us, Maggot sneered. Now is not the time for this, Javin said, still trying to keep his voice down, glancing about. Are you trying to get us caught? What does it matter? We're all going to fucking die anyway. One of us sooner than the others. Javin said, taking a step forward. Maggot puffed up like a blowfish and stepped up to meet him. Aye, I'd say. Vane stood out on his temples and sweat trickled down his cheeks. Enough, Tonin hissed. Neither of you fools is going to get me killed today. Maggot sneered at Tonin. What are you going to do, half-breed? Tell the boss. He won't have to, Javin said. Speak another word and I'll have your blood right here in this marketplace. But I won't kill you. I'll leave you for the farthy. Their eyes locked. Javin's blood boiled in his chest, sizzling in his ears, and every sinew tightened to act. This would not be a brawl. This would be a duel. The battle of wills hung in the air like the poised blade of a headsman. Maggot swallowed hard. This isn't over, you fucking noble jackal. Not by a league, back toward the marketplace. He felt Maggot's gaze on his back, burning. His mind reeled with the question, Why was Maggot doing this now? Damn him for a low-born fool. Their exchange had gained the attention of a few nearby women and vendors, but they turned their attention away when they saw that the impending altercation had diffused itself. Nevertheless, Javin felt furtive eyes on them as they moved into the square. How many people had heard their exchange? How many people recognized Cuskish? The fighting had stopped months ago, but Fartha did not feel like a land at peace. He took a deep breath and moved into the marketplace where the sing-song voices of the vendors echoed above the multitude of normal chatter. He understood little of it, but his eyes scanned the stalls and carts laden with goods. The women haggled with the vendors. Children scurried here and there. As they moved through the crowd, the groups of women parted like schools of fish around a river stone without notice or glance. Perhaps Tonin need not have worried about touching any of the women accidentally. The first item on Rusk's list was a coil of thin hemp rope, which they found easily enough in the stall of a local roper. Tonin did all the talking. The roper eyed Javin and Maggot curiously, but he was happy to accept their coin and sell them a length of rope. When they stepped away from the stall, Javin let out a deep breath. 
he had expected the transaction to be more difficult. A commotion near the edge of the marketplace snagged their attention. Four armored mounted soldiers rode into the marketplace, reining up in the center of the crowd and forcing dozens of startled women and frightened children to jump aside and make way. The soldiers shouted at the people to move aside. The soldiers were little more than boys. Their polished helms and breastplates glinted in the sunlight. Their cheeks were smooth. The three fledgling furies glanced at each other. It was time to go. They edged around the back of the roper's stall while the eyes of everyone else fell on the soldiers. One of the soldiers stood high in the saddle and raised his voice to make an announcement. Tonin listened carefully as the three of them slid toward the nearest narrow alley. The crowd listened as the soldier gave his announcement. Gasps rippled through the marketplace. Oh no, Tonin murmured. The soldier asked the crowd a question. What is it? Javin glanced out toward the soldiers again. Some of the crowd pointed in their direction. Run! Tonin hissed. Run! They spun and ran. A shout erupted from behind them. Don't stop or we're dead men, Tonin said. They lunged down the narrow alley, leaping over piles of refuse, clucking chickens and a couple of tethered cones. A tumult of surprise and outrage grew like an avalanche of sound behind them, echoing down the alley. The honking of the soldiers' collades punctuated the human cacophony. But the collades were too big to enter this alley and follow them. Every pounding, frantic stride took the three of them farther away from the rest of the Furies, but there was nothing to do but flee. Javin's worst nightmare had come true. Eventually the shouts of pursuit dwindled behind until Javin's feet skidded to a halt at the edge of a canal, the greenish-brown water seven feet below. "'What did they say?' Maggot gasped. "'Why are they after us?' They said that the heir of the priest-king of Alcott was kidnapped early this morning by Cuscan spies, Tonin said. Cuscan spies, Javin said. That's what he said. Something is rotten here, Javin said. Aye, Maggot snarled, and it's you. I knew you'd get us caught, you. Tonin's fist backhanded Maggot across the face. Maggot stumbled to the side but righted himself. So the half-breed and the nobleman are buggering each other now. That's just fine. Shut up, Javin said. Why would they believe that Cuscan spies kidnapped the son of a priest-king? My father would not seek revenge like this. There is no one else who could have come this far as quickly as we have. Does this canal pass by the inn? I think so, Tonin said. There's a boat. He pointed at a narrow rowboat moored at a small dock at the waterline. Perhaps we can circle around to regroup with the others. Javin said, And take the chance that we'll lead the soldiers right back to our door? No. Someone is sure to see us. We three are expendable, and the mission must go on. If we three die, they can still save Bella. We need to hide now and hope we can find them later. Where? Javin pointed at a small stone archway just above the water line across the canal. That looks like a sewer. We need to get out of sight. He did not look for agreement. He lowered himself into the canal, dropping into the water to minimize the splash. The water stank of sewage and rot, but he swam quickly across the twenty-foot-wide canal and ducked into the opening. There was just enough space between the water and the stone ceiling for his head and shoulders. The opening proved indeed to be a sewage pipe. Bits of discarded food, detritus, and human filth floated around him. A wet, greenish-brown slime slicked the walls. The stench was horrendous, but it would do less harm than the point of a farthy scimitar. Tonin and Maggot followed him inside. They all moved far out of sight into the narrow tunnel, then tried to rest. Their breath came under control, and the minutes flowed past like the slow waters of a canal.
Javin muttered, We know where the Furies are headed, the High Temple. Come nightfall, we'll make our way there and... Take your idea and go fuck a spine rat, Maggot murmured. Tonin glared at Maggot. And what have you done today besides draw attention to us? Maggot stared sullenly at the stone wall. I don't care if you hate him, Tonin said. But you're going to tell me why, because I don't intend to die because of any more of your stupidity. Because he's a fucking noble. Isn't that enough? No, it's not, Tonin said. By the gods, are you touched in the fucking head? It was a man like him who got my unit flanked and slaughtered during the war. Some foppish Nancy soft skull without the brains or courage Helion bestowed upon a pile of jackal shit. My cousin died. My friends died. Some nobleman's wet-behind-the-ears inbred son got command of an elite artillery unit and got most of us all killed because he couldn't pull us back in time because he wouldn't. He wanted the glory. It was a man like him who mustered me out of the army and stole my only livelihood. I'm a cannoneer and a fucking good one, not a farmer or a tailor or a fucking mule skinner. It was a man like him who begat a bastard child on my sister and threw her aside like trash. All of them were right honorable noblemen, just like him. I'll never call him a brother, no matter what the boss says. That's a sad tale, Tonin said wryly. You've been practicing that little speech, I take it. Maggot spun toward him, but the confines of the sewer tunnel prevented much more. Now you listen to me, you pile of jackal shit, Tonin said. This man didn't do any of those things. You sound like a fucking baby. He's an arrogant bastard sometimes, to be sure, but he's made it through two minutes of heaven. Have you? Maggot looked away. Well, have you? This is not a rhetorical question. Something sits ill with killing a countryman at a time like this, even if he is a milk-sucking idiot bockfucker. but you test me. Answer the question. Aye, I finished two minutes of heaven, Maggot murmured. Could any of those other inbred noble pricks have done that? None. What did you say? Not many, I'll wager. Damn right, but he did. He's made of different stuff. Besides, there aren't any nobles and commoners here. There's just us, the Furies, and the only other people around here want to kill us. Does this ridiculous arguing like eight-year-olds make any sense at all? Maggot turned to face the wall again. He didn't get us noticed. You did. Fear not, I'll not breathe a word of this to the boss, provided we ever see him again. But, if you compromise us again, I'll either kill you on the spot, or in your sleep at the first opportunity. Tonin sighed and began to relax. Helian's balls, maggot. You couldn't have brought any of this up on board the ship. They simmered in the filthy, reeking water, feeling unpleasant things brushing past them. Surges of noise outside waxed and waned. After a while, Javin said quietly, I hope no one was squatting in the toilet around here during that little exchange. The gods know I'd have been surprised to hear voices coming out of my drainpipe. Tonin snickered. If there were, I think we'd have seen the results come floating by.
chapter 39. Thank you for seeing me in this time of great tribulation, Your Holiness, Hassad said as the acolyte ushered him into the sanctum of the Most Holy Priest King, Zamath Om Fathad the Seventeenth. The old man smoothed his long white beard as he arose from his desk to meet his visitor. They stood before one another and performed the age-old ritual of greeting that was so elaborate and so rarefied that few far the ever-born had seen it performed. It was used only among priest-kings and other of the holiest religious leaders, high-ranking men of equal status. They made the complex series of gestures with the sing-song chants that were half-blessing, half-greeting. The ritual ended with them kissing each other on the cheek. When the ceremony was finished, Zameth said, I thank you for your concern and for the aid you pledged in helping us to root out the spies. It is the least I can do, Your Holiness. I can hardly believe that the Cuskins would be so bold as to do such a heinous deed. This is tantamount to war. Indeed it is. It seems they are trying to provoke us. I have already sent messengers to my brethren to convene a ruling council. Zamath's hand kept smoothing his long beard, lightly rattling the beads of gold and precious stones braided into it. The short man's shoulders were hunched by age and responsibility, and he walked with the bow-legged gait of a man who had spent much of his life kneeling in prayer. A lifetime of drinking kalf had stained his teeth black. Hassad had known Zamath Omphathad for most of his life. Zamath was pious but pragmatic. One does not reign as a priest-king for more than thirty years and not learn how to hold on to power, how to understand the hearts of men, and how the evils of the world and the decisions of kings could test one's faith. He had forty-two children by eight wives, and Zamish Amphathad was the eldest son. There were six elder daughters, but they had long been married into powerful families, and had borne Zameth an expanding brood of grandchildren. Zameth loved Zamish above all, all the easier to manipulate him. Your Holiness, I have sent all of my priests and acolytes into the streets in search of these Cuscan spies. They will be found. Of course, the fact that Cuscan spies had likely followed Bella Wollstone's captors to Alcott would be useful to him if they were captured. They could already be gone so many ways in and out of the city. Fear not, Your Holiness. Cuscans cannot hide here without being noticed. Do you not agree? I suppose that is true. Come, sit. Let us have a drink. Indeed, Your Holiness is most generous. They sat on the cushioned mats, the room was exactly as Hassad remembered it from his previous visit. The icons of the prophets were just as polished and just as carefully placed. Zameth Om Fathad Seventeenth thrived on piety, not adornments. The room's Spartan simplicity provided everything a man needed to worship the gods, venerate the prophets, and perform his duties as a ruler. All that and nothing more. As the host, Zameth poured each of them a small cup of kalf, and they drank together to discharge the host's duty of refreshment before serious business could be discussed. After an acceptable pause of appreciative silence, Hassad said, Excellent cough, Your Holiness. Thank you, but you are too kind. My servants usually make little more than swill. Modesty in the face of a compliment was a well-cultured skill. The priest-king knew full well that his cough was among the best in all of Fartha. A terrible thing those Cuscan spies did. 
Hassad's senses encompassed the holy man like an invisible blanket, even though his attention would appear to be nothing more than casual. But he was taking in the smallest nuance. The sweat of worry on Zamath's brow, the slump of the shoulders, the movement of the eyes, the expression, the breathing. Such was the delicacy of Hassad's perception, that if he focused in silence, he would be able to hear his host's heart beating. He kept his voice properly earnest in every syllable and intonation. Of course, all of Alcott wants to help your holiness find him. Not a stone will be left unturned. If they have harmed a hair on my son's head, Zamath's voice hardened. I am sure the prophets will smile upon your most terrible vengeance. But let us not be too hasty, your holiness. I urge caution. Zamath's gaze snapped up from the table. What? What are you talking about? They have taken my son. These are delicate times, are they not? Will the other priest-kings be willing to launch Fartha into another bloody war? Some of them, yes, but not all. Zameth's face soured and compressed like a dry, squeezed peach. No, not all, but I will make them see. The balance of power on the ruling council stands for peace, yes? It does. And I must say that until today I had counted myself among them. I trusted Ambassador Zamhel as a worthy emissary, a wise man, and an astute judge of politics. I believed Janice Wollstone to be a man of honor, for an infidel. But now he has shown the treachery that hides in his infidel heart, has he not? It seems so. Zamet slapped the table. To do such a deed in broad daylight, at such a holy place, the audacity, the gall— Hassad spoke slowly, like a serpent uncoiling itself. Your Holiness, what do you know of my order? Zameth blinked, as if the sudden change in topic confused him. What do I know of your order? What does everyone know? You call Sadim the great prophet, and call upon him for guidance. You do not recognize the holy deeds and miracles of Melim. That is why... In centuries past, the Melimites persecuted the Sadimites. But not any more, and not for over four hundred years. Your order is strict in its adherence to your portion of Scripture, the strictest of all, and the priest-kings respect that. We do not always condone the severity of your practices, but we respect your faith and your piety as believers in Helion, Enanan, and one of the prophets. Why do you speak of this now? Your Holiness, I know that you and the other priest-kings have spies in our temples. Fear not, Your Holiness, we have known for some time. I am not here to confront you in this, your time of woe and worry. Then why? For centuries, our own people have mistrusted us because we devote ourselves to Sadim. When we have wanted nothing more than to show people the true path to paradise, the word of Sadim, prophet of the moon, brings enlightenment to all who hear it. As does the wisdom and guidance of Melim, the prophet of the sun. Zameth stiffened. Your Holiness, I bring this up now, because there might be another way besides outright war. You know that my brethren have special skills, secret skills. Zameth's roomy eyes narrowed and he waited before he spoke. I have heard tales of your order 
training your monks to be warriors. It is true, Your Holiness. Sometimes we have faced persecution even among Farthi when we spread the word of Sadim. Our brethren learned centuries ago special ways to protect ourselves. We learned to make ourselves unseen, to hide in plain sight. Hassad fixed Zimeth with a single penetrating glance that told him he had not yet told the priest-king anything he didn't already know. Zimeth's gaze did not waver. Now was the time. Your Holiness, what if I could offer you Janus Wollstone's head on a spear? Zameth blinked again and leaned back. What are you talking about? I am talking about my brethren, acting under your direction, stealing into Janus Wollstone's bedchamber and taking his head while he sleeps. Impossible! But the old man was intrigued, nonetheless. Your Holiness, there are... Even now, in cities around Cusca, brethren of my order waiting to do my bidding, hiding in plain sight. Of course he had brethren in every farthy city and many towns as well, even within the halls of priest-kings. Zameth wiped his lips and studied Hassad's meticulously implacable expression. Hassad could see the wily old priest-king's mind whirling with the ramifications. So I ask you now, Your Holiness, do you want war, or do you want revenge? Hassad climbed into his palanquin, which waited for him in the palace's spacious white-tiled courtyard. That had been easier than expected. Zameth wisely feared his order's reach, but he also believed that Hassad was his most loyal servant. Hassad was indeed loyal. He was loyal to holy scripture, not the machinations and petty squabbling of men, no matter how holy their births and deaths. The moment the priest-kings had agreed to the cessation of the war, they had become apostates to their faith. The Farthi people had strayed from the truth and discipline of the holy word. They had grown weak and unfaithful, they had allowed sin into their hearts and minds. It had grown more prevalent, more insidious, since the war had ground to a halt. The duty of all righteous men required them to bring infidels to the light of the gods or else to scourge their pestilence from the earth. There was no other choice for a man of true faith. His people had grown soft and decadent, and he had seen it coming years before, as a young man, in a dream vision sent from the breast of the great prophet himself. Hassan had heard the scripture in his mind and had seen the sinfulness of his people. Since that moment, he had walked the journey to this day, passing many difficult roads and crucial crossroads. At every crossroad, the voice of the great prophet had been there to guide him. In the secret book of Sadith, the great prophet's younger brother and protector, Sadith handed down to his followers the knowledge and ancient wisdom that formed the core of their secret techniques of the absatha, discipline, stealth, combat, and above all, faith. As Sadith lay dying from an infidel spear taken in defense of his brother, he had a vision from the gods. Hassad knew the passage with every fiber of his being. And infidels in their arrogance will dare to touch the faces of the gods themselves, and so begin the bloodiest conflict ever fought by men. 
amidst lakes of blood and mountains of bones, after father kills sons and daughters slaughter mothers, after brother eats brother, and after all this, when men are reduced to beasts, the gods will anguish at the depravity and savagery of men, and together they will conceive a third son, who will be named Chith, and he will call down Helion's wrath to sear the land clean, and evoke Inanan's sorrow to drown the world's scars and bring back new life, and the third age of heaven and man will dawn. The Coming of the Third Son Even the infidels recognize the sun, the moon, and their two sons, Chib and Cham, and Hec, the jealous sister of Helion, who took Chib and Cham into the underworld to torture and to love them. But only Sadith spoke of the coming of the third son. The priest-kings had long ago discounted the divinity of the secret book of Sadith. To them it was no more than a scholarly curiosity, a historical relic. But they only possessed the first half of the book. The Absatha possessed the only extant complete scroll, written in Sadith's own hand. That scroll contained secrets and wisdom far beyond man's ken. Sadim was the right hand of the gods, but Sadith was the sword in Sadim's hand, and that sword was sharp indeed. The Absatha had kept it honed from time immemorial. Of course, Hassad had lied to Zameth. Killing the Grand General of Cuska would not avert a war. The assassination of the Grand General would throw Cuska into chaos, and amidst that chaos, vengeance would rise in their hearts. They would strike out at their ancient enemy with even greater fury than that engendered by the fate of poor little Bella Wollstone. If necessary, Hassad would send his brethren to put daggers in the hearts of enough priest-kings to make the final war a surety. Soon the final war would commence, a war to end all wars, and in this new war there would be no glory, no honor, only blood and fear and suffering, the likes of which the earth had never seen. And the gods would see the savagery and death, and they would anguish, and in their anguish they would conceive the third son, and the third son would come and cleanse the earth. Hassad tingled with pleasure as he closed the curtain of his palanquin. When he returned to the high temple, he would dispatch a messenger to Norgard. It was all going well indeed. Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Hearman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the Donate button. Give whatever you like, but is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it, or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.